This video is kindly sponsored by Project Red. Check the link in the description to find out more. Hello everyone, welcome to another week of Meet a Maker. This week we are meeting Amy Coronado, who is a material scientist. Um, hello, how are you? <laughs> Hi, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. This is going to be really, really interesting. I think this is a part of the maker community and, and sort of like an unseen behind the scenes, really important part of so much of what we do. So I'm, I'm really, really interested to hear what, what does a material scientist do for anyone who is uninitiated? What, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, there are lots who are uninitiated. So <laughs> I don't think you're asking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so material science is basically chemistry for solids. So anything that is optimized in a material from making metal harder uh, or resistant to rust to making plastic stretchier um, to making fabric wick away sweat uh, more or less impervious to heat, that is all material science. So if you look around your living room, you point to any surface, anything that is a solid Pretty much across the board, a material scientist has touched that, has designed that, has optimized that in some way, or the coating on that, like paint on the walls. So, sometimes that's chemistry, but also sometimes that's material science, especially when it's dry. So, yeah. oh, so that's cool. all us. Yeah, it's I. Yeah, I suppose it's sort of like industrial designers. They're one of those like unseen things that make the magic happen that you never really think about until you meet someone awesome like you. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I never thought about it until I heard about it from a book that my college sent me when I was trying to pick my major. And I was like, oh, my God, this is I can understand everything about the world now. I mean, not everything, but all of the questions that I didn't know I wanted to ask. That's so cool. So what what were some of those questions? What appealed to you? Why? Why did you pursue it when you got that book? I had always wondered why some materials were harder than others, why uh, things that were supposed to be hard would bend. Um, there's a, a saying on Reddit that's really old, jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams and it has to do with like the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Yeah. And uh, what actually happened there that was explained in this book that made me choose my major, um, which is Stuff Matters, shout out to Mark Miodanek, but uh, <laughs> is that the uh, the fuel as it was burning hit the beams and it made the grains inside the metal, which every metal has little tiny solidified grains, like grains of ice uh, mm. inside of it. And it made the grains grow and the grains getting bigger made the metal softer. So it didn't melt the beams, but it softened them, which allowed them to bend under the stress of the building and then the building collapsed. Yeah, so it's like a warping point as opposed to a melting point, or exactly, yeah, yeah. My newbie way of interpreting <laughs> that. No, that's someone? that's pretty much correct. And I, uh, I just like learning about that and learning about uh, why stainless steel doesn't rust and so many other types of metal rust, and why dry fit wicks away sweat and. Just learning about materials that I didn't even know existed, why some materials insulate and some allow heat and electricity to pass through them, all of that stuff just kind of explained to me the magic behind the world and all of the stuff that I saw happen. It's like, oh, okay, this is why 
the sky is blue. This is why <laughs> this metal holds up houses and uh, this metal is inside our forks. It just kind of connected everything on this really fundamental deep level. That's so cool. And and so what are some of your you you listed a bunch of a bunch of things there. Like what are some of your favorite examples and and how do they how do they work? Like I don't know, the the rust one for example. Yeah, yeah. So uh stainless steel is steel which is um iron and uh generally a little bit of carbon. The carbon is what makes it hard. Steel that has more carbon is harder. Um, but it also has uh, chrome in it. And the chrome reacts with oxygen in the air to make chromium oxide. And so the chromium oxide is the magic ingredient because chromium oxide is clear and really hard and tasteless and super inert. So it doesn't react with basically anything. Because normally iron wants to react with the air to create iron oxide, which is rust. Yeah. And the iron oxide will flake off, it'll turn red, and then uh, it will continue to flake off the layer below it and the layer below it until eventually you get a big hole. Mm -hmm. And when you have this protective layer of chromium oxide on the outside, it keeps it from doing that so it can maintain its shape and never rust. That's so cool. And so the stainless yeah. steel it creates that layer wherever it hits oxygen is that how it works yeah like like it's oxide the oxygen is and that that's the magic of it I mean, yeah. yeah no exactly <laughs> because if you have a piece of stainless steel and you scratch it mm. then the chrome that's inside the areas that you scratched reacts on the surface with oxygen and creates a new chromium oxide layer, layer chromium oxide layer so it just regrows right that's there so wherever feeling. it gets scratched Oh, that's so yeah, neat. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh, it is magic, isn't it? I saw that. <laughs> oh, it absolutely is. I um, I know I have this stainless steel water bottle. I don't have it anymore, but I used to have a stainless steel water bottle that um, I just, I, I washed and then I put it away while it was wet. And water in close contact with, uh, and in close contact areas of metal on metal, even if it is stainless steel, can cause crevice corrosion just because it's like a highly acidic area. Um, just surface effects of the material, but which is, to be honest with you, I'm not that well versed because it's a whole very specific area of metallurgy, but it can cause rust. So basically I had this water bottle, I put it away while it was wet, there was still water in between the threads on the top and it caused it to rust right around the threads. So I took the top of the water bottle off, scraped the rust off and then just left it out to dry and the chromium oxide lever or you keep saying lever. <laughs> the chromium <laughs> oxide layer just reformed and it wouldn't rust anymore. That's so cool. So stainless steel, you can just scrub off any rust and it's it's good to go again. You don't need to. That's so cool. Oh, I don't think I knew that. That's really exciting. <laughs> I can repair things and now. <laughs> some, some stainless steel, I will say they put like extra coatings and stuff on. Uh, if it's not really high chromium content, uh, then it won't reform that layer as easily. So they might put like a layer of clear polymer or something on it so that they can use less chrome because chrome is expensive. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> oh, cool. That's so cool. And and um, you were mentioning to me previously that that is what's on our knives and forks and that's why we don't taste taste the knife and fork, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, we are the first set of not the first anymore the first set of generations to not taste our cutlery 
because uh, stainless steel was invented in the early 1900s, I want to say like 1914, uh, but around then. And before that, your cutlery was wood or bone or uh, other types of metal, copper, not usually copper, because copper is really expensive. But if you were really rich, maybe you'd have copper utensils. <laughs> and you always taste that, you know, it, you know, the taste of a penny on your tongue or uh, sipping from a copper cup you can always taste that kind of metallic-y-ness to it. But you know that when you eat off of most metal utensils, stainless steel utensils, you don't taste anything. And that's because the chromium oxide layer on the outside is completely tasteless. That's so cool. That's so cool. Ah, it's magic. I love it. <laughs> I always like to say that, and I, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this. I think I probably heard this somewhere and then co-opted it. But um magic is just science that we don't understand yet yeah and so so learning material science just helped me understand a lot of the magic and connect it to science that we do understand I just didn't know about yeah wow oh that's so cool <laughs> and and what do you what do you do with the material science like currently like what do you do with it in your job or in your everyday um yeah what are you using it for <laughs> Yeah, so um, I my specialty is 3D printing and additive manufacturing in general. Uh, in school, I studied, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, in school, I studied kind of all sides of it. Uh, I've worked a little bit in like metal 3D printing, which was super cool. Um, but right now I'm working for a company that uh, Billy knows pretty well, Coco Press, that is making so a 3D cool. printer that prints chocolate. And Chocolate is a super interesting material. I mean, that's one of the big reasons I signed on is the opportunity to get to work with it all the time. Because uh, chocolate is a composite, which just means it's made up of a couple different things. Um, cocoa butter, if you've ever like baked with cocoa powder, that's another one of the components. And uh, sugar are the main components. And then like milk chocolate has milk powder in it. And it's really just that when you come down to it, you add different things in it, like uh, sometimes... Uh, things to help the ingredients stay together. Those are emulsifiers um, and and different stuff. But when it comes down to it, it's really cocoa butter, cocoa powder, sugar. Mm. So uh, those ingredients interact in really interesting ways. And uh, when you, but the main thing is the cocoa butter crystallizes in six different types. And I'm getting really into the weeds here, but uh, <laughs> it's cool. <though. laughs> how you control the temperature over time of the chocolate affects how it crystallizes and only certain types of crystals will give you the kind of shiny um, hard snapping chocolate that you want. So you have to be really careful and it follows this bizarre uh, temperature profile when you're tempering, which is what it's called trying to get that specific crystal structure where you go way up to melt all of it and then down this, this axis being temperature and this one being time yeah. <laughs> way up and then down. Um, and then you've got to go just slightly back up. So there are wow. machines that are made specifically for this uh, to get you to follow that curve really delicately. And uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about chocolate in general is it hasn't, been academically studied a whole ton. I mean, there, there's some papers and stuff out there, but it's really an art still. Mm. Like there are people who can look at a chocolate in th that's being melted and tempered 
uh, and smell it and tell you when it's going to be ready and how shiny it's going to be. Wow. But if you ask someone to quantify it, like if you ask a scientist to quantify this for you, it's, it's much less clear than say for metals. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Cause you like, cause it's such a quite an everyday part of, part of a lot of our lives, my life. <laughs> chocolate, And it's, yeah, it's interesting to know that it hasn't been studied so much on the academic side, but that, like you said, that would be really exciting because you'd be getting to do things first. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I won't say that I'm getting to do things first because I, the food industry is kind of it's studied privately because you can make a profit if you have gotcha. the secrets. Gotcha. So I'm sure all of this stuff is really well known and really well studied in people's, in companies' knowledge vaults, you know, like they have yeah. experts exactly that know so much about it from a scientific perspective and just that those are industry secrets. So figuring that stuff out is really fun for me as a scientist. And I love explaining it to people because uh, for us, the secret is not in the chocolate. It's uh, it, it's not even a real secret. The innovation for us is in the printing of it. But that means I can explain chocolate and how it works all I want. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so cool. And yeah, the printer is so cool. Like, I just love the idea of printing chocolate. It's amazing. And yeah, talking to you guys and talking to, to Evan and, and stuff about all the different possibilities that printing chocolate could could lead to um yeah really fascinating I, I find it very exciting <laughs> I love it I think it's so interesting and I feel super lucky to be working there with him I uh I always wanted to do something kind of interesting in like a startup -y atmosphere with 3d printing because I had worked um in internships and stuff at larger aerospace or um I worked at a steel mill, like gen generally larger companies that had like a materials department. And that was cool, but I, I just felt like something you hear a lot in material science is nothing you work on is gonna get to market for at least 20 years. And that, I I'm not patient enough for that. <laughs> yeah, I want results. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want my stuff to be seen by the world now. It's so cool, how could they not love it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so cool that you get the opportunity to do that. And I, I imagine working in a startup environment, you probably get to do more different stuff as well, like a more like a diverse range of things. Would I be correct in thinking that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I that's another thing that I feel like I'm a really high energy person who likes to like pivot and try to learn new things just to see. And I get to do that every day, you know, there's a million things that have to get done and all you gotta do is volunteer to do something and then off to the races, you know, figure it out, you can do it. And that has been really cool because it, it can be easy to get stuck. And I, I've felt this in my own career before this, it can be really easy to get stuck in doing what you're good at, mm -hmm. which is awesome and really fun and feels great to do something that you're good at, but shaking it up and trying to do something that you're not good at yet is hard but it gets easier the more you do it and I think it's really important yeah and really rewarding I, I I definitely feel the same like I had a job where I was good at it earlier you know in the last for the last few years really but I 
you kind of get bored after a while and you're like, yeah, I can do that thing. Da 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 da, it's done. And you know, like it, it's kind of cool to be able to learn something new and do something different and work out something. And I mean, I, yeah, I like the problem solving aspect, I suppose. So um, yeah, I definitely sympathize with wanting to do different stuff. <laughs> Yeah, for me, it's the being bad at it. And then when you're really, when you're just starting something, the change you see in the very beginning from being just level zero to even just a little better is so exactly you said rewarding. You're like, wow, I really learned quick. And then after that, you know, of course, it's exponential. It slows down. But yeah, and then we learn something new. We're like new thing. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, Yeah, love it. And love what Coco Press are doing. I love how Evan always says the best tasting infill is gyroid. And I'm like, I never even thought about infill. Like that would change it entirely. Like, oh, I can't wait to eat. Someday, someday I will eat some gyroid infill. It'll be (laughs) great. (laughs) Highly recommend. I had some yesterday. Oh, so lucky. Not to rub it in. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's all good. I will get there one day. <laughs> um, so when you're when you're approaching a new a new sort of problem or a new field, what's your creative process like? What's your learning process like? What does that look and feel like to you when you're tackling something new? Yeah, a lot of Googling. Like a lot of Googling. I really will just start with the first question in my head and Google it and then read a couple things and then find a word in that search that I didn't understand and Google that. And, uh, you know, it's not always Google, uh, but it is often Google. Sometimes I Google Scholar, sometimes I Bing. Um, every once in a while, I'll look in a book, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, if Google says the book is good, <laughs> then maybe... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I... And um, that has been just a really rewarding way to learn because it teaches you it starts out by teaching you what you want to know and then shows you along the way what you need to be looking for Mm. and I think that I mean that's how I learned about chocolate because when I started at Cocoa Press I didn't know much about chocolate other than what I had read just here and there in blurbs preparing for the interview and um thinking about it, but I I hadn't read academic papers. I hadn't done uh, the amount of research to really understand why our process worked and other ones didn't, what it really meant to process chocolate or any of that. And so it really was like weeks, um, maybe even like the first couple months of every time I ran into something that kind of puzzled me, like, why did it do this? Why did it behave like that? Google that, look it up and kind of dig into it. And something that was really kind of a breakthrough moment that made me put it all together was writing about it. We have a series of blog posts that we've been working on slowly um, at Cocoa Press where I am explaining chocolate from a materials perspective, but also from a how you use it in the machine perspective. And there was one blog post I wrote uh, called temper what it is and why it matters or something like that. And it really was just the process of going from start to finish, trying to explain 
what chocolate temper is and what crystals in cocoa butter are and why they matter and how you get them and what they look like. And um, that was the first time I was able to find a picture of a cocoa butter crystal. And I think I showed that off in a call with you one time. Yeah, I was yeah. just so excited because it was so interesting. <laughs> and when you put all, when I put all of that together in trying to explain it, that's when it really clicked for me. Because it made sense before in little bits, but when you when I kind of stepped back and looked at it in a bigger picture, all of the pieces fit together. And for me, that's kind of always been, I think, how I understand things on a grander scale. I, I kind of never shut up about material science. It's great. I love uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> my family has heard about every different kind of concrete. Like it, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, if you're around me, you're going to hear fun material facts every day, but um, awesome. I think they're fun. Not everyone else. I'm into it. I'm loving this. Like you just, the way you light up when you talk about, it's like me with 3D printing. I'm just like, bing, I'm on. And here is everything cool about this thing. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful to watch. <laughs> but uh, the, I think that's always been the way I've, I, I do lots of research and then it all clicks when I explain it to someone yeah and that's and sometimes it doesn't click when I'm explaining it to someone because I don't understand all of it and then I know the parts that I don't understand it points out my weak spots and I think that that's also really important because then you because I did try to explain chocolate temper a few times before that and why our machine worked a few times before that blog post and I didn't have all the pieces together and so really that exercise of trying to explain it in a way that anyone could understand mm-hmm. makes you realize what you don't know. And I think that that's really important. And uh, this is a, a somewhat controversial opinion, but I am of the opinion that if you can't explain something to someone who knows nothing about it, then you don't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, and, I can definitely concur with that. And like the process of learning something in order to teach it to someone else definitely does make you learn it better like even as I was doing a few little tutorial videos that are like a minute long on bits of Inkscape and stuff I learned things that I never would have actually known otherwise because I was actually going oh I want to teach this well and and be able to transfer it properly and I'm like oh I didn't know you could do that oh I didn't know you could do that oh that's cool now I understand how that thing works and yeah like it definitely I think that's what I like about work because I've worked in learning for quite a while and I think that's what I like about it is that you yeah when you're teach when you're learning with the goal of teaching someone else that thing you totally if you do you get a more rounded robust understanding of the whole thing and it puts all the pieces together and yeah I get you is what I'm saying I guess <laughs> yeah and even the concept of students whether or not you're actually going or not student even the concept of people that you're going to teach this to even if you aren't actually going to teach it to them challenges you to yes. know it better and I I agree I love that yeah it's good. It's really good. It's a good tactic. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to, I don't know. I was going to see if we changed topic. I was going to talk about, I don't know, more materials things or something. What? What's something, um, yeah, I suppose lots of us don't get the opportunity to print with chocolate, though chocolate printers are for sale now, so go check out Coco Press. But... <laughs> But I suppose it's more I, from I, oh, sorry, you go. <laughs> uh, I I guess one thing I also would love to talk about is um, plastics, three D printing plastics. Because I was just about to say the same thing. Most <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. great, great. <laughs> most people's experience in three D printing is with plastic, 
Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to touch on like why that's the case, why plastic is such a ubiquitous uh, 3D printing material and why it behaves the way it does. So plastic, they in general are polymers and polymers are, a word is made up of two parts, poly and mer, poly multiple, many, and mer unit. So it's just long chains of lots of individual units. And you can kind of think of it on a slightly more macro scale than the atoms as spaghetti noodles. Mm. Long spaghetti noodles and um, they're crumpled up all randomly. They want to be a want as in entropically want. Uh, That's a big word that just means their natural state is they want to be scrunched up. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like springs in that way. You can pull them and that stresses them. And when you tropically let them go, you give them a little bit of energy to go back to their natural state. They squish up. So uh, an easy way to show that that is truth, because, you know, it kind of just sounds like science magic, is that <laughs> chip bags, they have this plastic coating on the outside and they have a metal coating on the inside. The metal coating is not really important except for that when you put it in a microwave, metal heats up a lot. It concentrates the microwaves a lot. And so all of that heat allows the polymers to relax back into their natural state, which is why when you put a chip bag in the microwave, it scrunches up. That's cool. This size. <laughs> That's really cool. And if you think about it, it makes sense with like the spaghetti noodle analogy because when you're making chip bags, they're being made really fast. You have this, it's really hot and there's a big long tube of it and they're clamping it really fast. And so all of the polymer spaghetti noodles are getting stretched out mm-hmm. really fast mm-hmm. and then cooled down so they get frozen in that stretched out state. So when you put it in the microwave, and it heats up that metal coating, and that metal coating transfers the heat to the polymers on the outside. All of the polymers can scrunch up really fast, and it because it was... into its into its scrunch state, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And because it was so stressed, because it was frozen so quickly from that really stressed out state, it shrinks a lot, which is why it gets so small. And this kind of concept is totally visible in 3D printing as well because if you think about when you put when you put down plastic on your build plate your build plate is preheated and the reason it's preheated like that is to slow down the cooling of the plastic because if the plastic cools really quickly it it's that kind of that same kind of stress the chip bag gets frozen in mm-hmm. yeah. and all of that stress builds up and kind of pulls the part into itself and warps it off of the build plate. So that's what causes the warping is all of the frozen in stress. So when you heat the build plate, that's um, Newton valve cooling is like, if you have a, a big difference between the temperature you're starting at and the ambient temperature, your cooling rate is really fast. So if you're printing something really hot and you're in a really cold room, it's gonna cool really fast. And if you cool it really fast, it freezes in all that stress. But if you heat your build plate, it makes that difference a lot smaller. It makes the cooling rate a lot slower. 
and it allows all of the stresses inside the plastic to relax out as it's cooling rather than get frozen in. Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, it makes it makes sense. And I it's so cool to hear the science behind, you know, the first struggle most people have with 3D printing is their their prints warping up off, off the bed. So it's so cool to hear how that works on a like like a what am I saying? Like a physical science scale. Like a I had a good word for it, but it's gone. Anyway, but it's so good to see to understand how it works. Like, yeah, in on the yeah, and in reality. <laughs> All of the scale words, I mean, they are used somewhat interchangeably, which is really confusing to most people. People say like microscopic, macroscopic, all that stuff. And they have like definitions, but they're used so interchangeably often the meanings get diluted and it's hard to even tell what they're supposed to mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On a tiny scale. On a, <laughs> yeah. yeah. On a really, yeah. really, really small scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But oh, uh, something else that's really interesting is... Um, all of this, these little strings, you think about as you're pushing the plastic through your nozzle, which is this tiny, tiny little hole, all of the strings are getting shoved together and mm. compressed. And then when they come out, they want to like expand really fast. And uh, this is a thing that is experienced by plastics in all kinds of processing, um, injection molding, they have, uh, that's called, it's called dye swelling. And it's the same thing. When you shoot a ton of plastic into an injection mold, you have to have a ton of force holding that mold together because it wants to pop apart because all of the plastics that are getting really compressed as they're going through this injection mold hole are expanding really fast in that space. You got to keep a ton of pressure to keep it from popping open. Mm. So uh, that's, something to watch out for in uh, 3D printing. I mean, it's all been dealt with by these like awesome 3D printers that have calibrated for all that kind of stuff. Oftentimes without even knowing that that's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a fun thing. Amazing magic. Not magic, but very clever people doing very clever things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's um, K-value. You know, K-value is one of the like hot topics of um, 3D printing optimization like oh you can have your k value to account for uh compressibility and one of the sources of compressibility in your system is die swelling you're able to force those spaghetti noodle polymer strings close together but they're gonna expand back apart mm. and the compressibility of the plastic can be accounted for in the k value so that's why that's even necessary mm, fascinating oh it's so so the k value is that like underfilling it a little or something so that it has room to expand into or like what is what does it mean the k value <laughs> so uh i have this written down let me pull it up so i make sure that i get it right <laughs> because this was a this is something that i researched a, a while ago um, and I, I could explain it to you to a T like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, I put you on the spot. That's very mean. Of oh, me. no, no, no. <laughs> it's totally fine. I, this is one of those moments where I'm like, I should know this better. There you go. <laughs> I was wondering. A teachable too, moment for as, myself. <laughs> oh, I'll ask it in a minute. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask, as the plastic is squeezed through the nozzle, all those little spaghettis inside, 
do they sort of align in an orientation too, or do they stay pretty chaotic inside that media? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. They do often align. And um, this is something that is a, a really interesting part of filament processing as well, you know, making the filament. Uh, most filament that's made professionally is pulled. Mm. And the pulling helps align it because stretching it in that, it just makes all of the little strings pull out and line up next to each other. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever seen a professional filament line, it starts at one end and someone like grabs the filament as it comes out of this little die and they pull it through some water tanks to cool it progressively. And all of that pulling lines it up. Pushing it through a nozzle can do that as well. It doesn't do it quite as effectively, but it can, which is one of the reasons that if you see like there are some filament recyclers out there that are extrusion based so they work just the same way a 3d printer does but just with a bigger nozzle to try to make more filament out of old pieces of plastic mm -hmm. and it's a really space efficient way to do it but you don't get the same kind of aligned polymers as you would by pulling it and so that can affect your quality of your filament so it's better to have aligned polymers then what does it mean when they're aligned? yes um when they're aligned it in general helps and I haven't done that much research on this no, side of it sorry, I will say, but in general having them be aligned um, helps your filament strength it helps with like flexibility and not having it be as brittle because if you think about it it's like it's like a piece of rope if you have a bunch of little fibers all lined up and overlapping each other, that's going to be a stronger rope than some knots that are kind of loosely held together. And the knots are the more scrunched up spaghetti noodles that are just kind of adjacent to each other versus the rope is when they're all aligned and stretched out next to each other. Got it. So they sort of tangle together a little when and when they're longer, they can tangle more. And then does that... Am I making, is that right? Is that yeah, cross-linking? Yeah. Is that the cross-linking thing I've heard about when things overlap and or is that different? <laughs> it's it's similar. Uh, cross-linking can be different things. Um, chemical cross-linking is when they have uh, generally very difficult to break chemical bonds between the spaghetti noodles. Um, and those are like atom to atom covalent bonds usually. Um, and, and this is getting into like really intense chemistry, but covalent bonds are just really strong. strong. They're not quite as strong as like ionic bonds, but they're they're one of the stronger chemical bonds. Um, and then there are, uh, I believe they're called physical crosslinks, which are secondary types of bonds that are not quite as strong and they're not um, unbreakable in the same kind of way. Like hydrogen bonds, um, are a type of cross-linking that can happen there. And all of those are like slightly weaker, but they do help, especially if there's a lot of them, which there usually are in polymers because polymers have a lot of atoms that can cross-link. Uh, that can help strengthen your material. Is that exactly what you're saying, the cross-linking between the strands. Mm. Generally, you don't want chemical cross-linking in 3D printing fibers that 
stuff that's 3D printed by FDM, the squirting out of the filament. Because if you have cross-linked filament, then it won't melt and re-extrude. Gotcha. So the more cross-links, the harder it is to melt because it doesn't want to break yeah. those bonds. Okay, interesting. But cross-linking or uh, linking and polymerization, sometimes cross-linking, is how stereolithography works. So you've got these little, like, wiggly polymer string noodles that are in in the what is the i'm blanking the name of the, the fluid like yes the resin, or, resin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah in in resin you've got generally shorter polymer strings and on the ends of them they have these photoreactive groups they're called and they're basically um when they get hit with a light they crack open and have available bonds and all of those available bonds will latch on with another photoreactive group from another one and you get longer and longer polymer strings because all the shorter ones join together. Gotcha. And ah. <laughs> yeah, and the longer the polymer string is, the more viscous the resin becomes until it eventually becomes solid. Wow. So it oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, wow. That's fascinating. Sorry, I'm, my mind's a bit blown right now. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was too when I learned that. It's, I mean, because it, it's a pretty simple concept when it's explained that way, but most people are just like, oh, yeah, you just hit it with the light and it becomes solid. And they don't realize that it is like a making those resins is much more difficult and chemistry intensive, <laughs> but understanding it is really not that complicated it's just these photoreactive groups that crack open and hook together yeah so does the uv actually break that group like it, it gives it enough energy to open is that how that's happening and then it's kind of like lock and lock and key or something kind of joining together with all the other bits yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly you can think of it as like um it's it's like a two circles hooked together and then you hit it with the photo, and this is a very non-chemistry scientific explanation, good, but <laughs> you hit it with the light and it goes like this. And then uh, if this is the polymer string, it just floats around and it finds another one and they, they hook together. Yeah. And then just like brrr, it goes down. And um, when the strings get longer, they tangle together and the tangled together strings make a solid. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Oh. That's so cool. <laughs> I really like it. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and so there's like flexible filaments and solid filaments. I don't know if and, and resins as well. Is it to do with like the length of the polymers as to how you get those sort of brittle versus flexible or what like what I suppose what in material science do you do to make something brittle versus um flexible? What are the that's probably a yeah. Really so, question. um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a good question, and it's a, I think a question that a lot of people have and just like don't even know how to ask. Uh, so the there's a couple different ways that you can make something more or less brittle in plastic, specifically in plastics for 3D printing. The way that that is often done is either by having 
some of those crosslinks I was talking about, usually secondary bond crosslinks, not the like really strong unbreakable ones, but the less strong ones that when there are a lot of them have a pretty big effect. Uh, and the more kinds of those bonds and the more available positions for those bonds, the stronger and more brittle your filament can be. And then you can also have longer chains. But the thing with longer chains, that is harder to melt because they stick together. And gotcha. this is the part where I start to get into the weeds. I really, my next class that I want to take uh, is organic chemistry so that I can really understand all of the types of bonds specifically in carbon because most polymers are just hydrocarbon chains which it, it it's a fancy science word that just means hydrogen and carbon chains so it's yeah. a bunch of c with a bunch of h's sticking off um and then sometimes it has a c and an h or some c's and some h's sticking off in different places um so i really want to understand that more because that will allow me to answer questions like that a lot yeah. better Okay, I'll stop asking tricky ones. But yeah. Oh no, I I want tricky questions. Okay, good, good. I just can't always answer them as well as I would like to. I'm I'm learning lots. I am loving this. I'm like, yeah, like this is very exciting to me. So thank you so much for sharing it all. Yeah. Um. Kind of on the aligning polymer side of it, I um I got one of these. One of the first things that my one of my materials professors ever showed us as like a little fun demo was that you can see when polymers get aligned if you've ever had like uh one of those pen clips or pencil clips that sticks off the side of your pencil when you bend it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth it turns white at the point that you're bending it yep and that's a polymer aligning effect so the polymers are aligning and that's allowing less light through and that light not coming through makes it white rather than whatever, like less opaque color it was before. Wow. Okay. And so they're aligning you along can that see break that. line. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you can see that in these, like you pull it. And of course this one is a lot harder to see. But some of those high stress areas start to turn white. It starts to turn white. I'm trying to find one that's going to show up on the camera. Oh. We'll yeah, this one that. is just breaking. <laughs> I'm sure we've all done that before. Like we've all stretched a piece of plastic and seen that. Yeah, like a, it turns white like that. I definitely have done that before. <laughs> Yeah, and you can think about it like lace versus like a lace curtain versus a fabric curtain. When you've got these kind of randomly oriented polymer chains, and I know lace is not random, but like let's just imagine for a second, uh, <laughs> it's got more spaces, it's got more wiggles in it. That's relaxed polymers, and it allows light through. This is a pretty relaxed polymer. You can see a lot of light through it. But then when you align it, like in a fabric curtain, there's a lot less space between polymer chains. There's a lot less places for light to get through and it becomes white. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 definitely. And the 
yeah, the opacity thing you were talking about before. It does. It makes sense. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> and you were showing me before that you can actually feel the energy change when you're stretching something like that too, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. A f an experiment that like anyone can do at home with one of these, uh, except for in Australia, which you guys don't have a no, soda can tops like these, which <laughs> I love. I love that. Uh, plastics, they're super interesting, but they're also, uh, they are so stable that they never degrade. Not never, but they take like incredible amounts of time to degrade like upsetting amounts of time and so they are really bad for the environment so I'm really 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 happy that Australia doesn't have those but um, anyone who does have something like this this part right above your upper lip is one of the most sensitive in your body to changes in heat uh, that's you know to keep you safe from burning your mouth on foods but if you stretch something like this and then put it on your upper lip because it's so sensitive, you can feel that it's a little warmer. And that's because when something is randomly oriented, it has these little secondary bonds between all of the randomly oriented little knots. And it has bonds within itself, you know, that kind of hold the knot together. And then when you stretch it, you break a bunch of those bonds and energy is released. And that released energy you can feel in the form of heat on your upper lip. That is so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> I just love it. I remember when she showed that to us, I was like, oh, that's magic. That is magic. <laughs> yeah. I love, I, yeah, I just love coming to understand the mechanics behind everyday things. It's just fascinating to me. Like, that is just so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to touch on, you raised it a little bit, the the sort of permanence of plastic and, and the sort of effect of, because it's something I personally worry about with 3D printing and, and why I mostly print in PLA and why I save all my scraps of filament and everything is because I'm aware that, you know, it's a plastic that I'm kind of using for joy a lot of the time. Um, and and so I, yeah, I, I understand that it has an environmental effect and a, a run-on effect. And I guess, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? And and how do you think about the life cycle of, of the materials you're designing or working with? Yeah. So um, plastics, I remember a couple of years ago, everyone was up in arms about microplastics and especially in soaps, you know, there were the little exfoliating microplastic beads in all of these soaps and people were like, why would you do that? It just goes down the drain and then it goes into the oceans. And then you've got microplastics in the oceans and fish are eating them and it's so bad. And yeah, I mean, it is really bad. Um, that specifically was really bad. But all plastics break down into microplastics. Mm. So not just beads and soaps, it's every one of these. And um, every piece of plastic that goes through your hands uh, takeout containers, all of it breaks down into microplastics and it's eaten by animals and it goes through um, the life cycles of multiple animals before it's even starting to break down. Mm -hmm. And so that's really rough because the reason plastic is so ubiquitous is it is a miracle material. There is no other material that is so easy to process that can be formed into so many unique shapes with relatively little energy and 
companies love it because of that. It is so easy to make your product out of plastic. But the flip side of that is not thinking about where it goes. A lot of the time we use plastic to solve problems. Like I need a container for my food. Plastic is cheap. And on the manufacturing side, plastic is easy to make. Let's use plastic. Mm-hmm. But you could make that container out of cardboard. And it wouldn't take millions, billions of years to degrade. And uh, that's not like to shame anyone. Um, I understand all of the economic choices behind that. But I think something that's really important to think about as a scientist, as an engineer, um, as people who are making stuff is what's going to happen to it when you're done with it. And that's a really hard thing to plan and think about, um, especially in 3D printing where plastic is what is what you work with. It's, mm-hmm. it's what available. It's what's highly developed. Um, it's what has all of these amazing resources built around it. And it is a really important material. And I'm not saying don't print in plastic because I want to keep seeing amazing things being made in plastic. But I guess what I'm saying is I think as a community, we need to come together and think about ways to give plastic a circular lifespan rather than a linear one. Because right now we're going, we have a problem, we need to solve it. Plastic. Mm-hmm. What we need to think about is we have a problem, we need to solve it. And then we need to figure out what we're going to do to bring that back into another solution that we can use again and again. Mm-hmm. Because without that, that's how we get landfills. That's how we get sea turtles with their stomachs full of, I, I know that's the classic example with their stomachs full of plastic. But it's so um, sad. I mean, it, it really is. I've seen it, yeah. And, like, yeah. <laughs> and on top of all that, it's such a wasted resource. Mm, like mm. all of the plastic that we have in landfills and in the ocean that we throw away, that is a tremendous resource that we could be using to make that whatever it was made out of over again. You know, not directly. There are breakthroughs that need to happen in science to make that happen. But recycling, I think, is to me, the only way that we can continue to consume resources the way that we have been Mm. for the life cycle of, or for the lifetime of humanity. You know, Mm. we need a lot of stuff to keep us going. Uh, We need houses to live in, things to hold our food, uh, things to make our food. Mm -hmm. So clothes to wear, um, couches to sit on, laptops to talk to uh, really cool people (laughs) on all of that stuff takes materials and um, I can point to three different types of plastic in the screen of my laptop that I'm looking at right now and that's not going to the need for that's not going to go away but what's really important is to try to focus on making sure that all of those materials can go back into use Mm -hmm. because thinking of it as a problem solution is how you how you waste resources and end up in this kind of non-renewable situation that we're in right now where we're gonna run out Mm. i remember um one of the things that got me really passionate about this is there was a a talk by i think it was like a ted talk by someone who used to be an around the world sailor like she had a boat and she would sail around the world and she said 
when you're on a boat, you've only got what's on the boat. And once you run out, there's no more. And eventually she realized like the earth is just a big boat and it's big enough that we haven't realized the limits of what's on the boat yet, but we will. Yeah. And it's coming up. Yeah. And if we don't figure out how to reuse what's on the boat, we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned challenges with that. Uh, what are those sorts of challenges when it comes to recycling plastics or polymers? <laughs> yeah, so um, there's two types of plastic generally. There's thermoplastics and thermosets. And the main difference is just can you melt it and form it into something again after it's been solid? And that's that makes it seem like with any thermoplastic, you could just melt it and reform it and melt it and reform it and melt it and reform it, which would be great, you know, if it was true. But it's not uh, because the reality is those heating cycles that over and over again, they degrade the polymer strings, they break them down, they uh, mess up some of the bonds. Just over time, you can't get that same kind of ideal performance from a thermoplastic. So one of the challenges is the easy way to think about recycling a thermoplastic would be I make something, I melt it down, I make it into a filament, I do it again. But that can only be done a couple of times before the filament, before the plastic in it is too degraded to go through that process again. Mm. And you, one of the big challenges in recycling is figuring out how to make that not the case. And that's, that's something that I really want to study. That's, uh, I mentioned wanting to take organic chemistry. I think that's something that can really help me understand that more because that to me is like a big passion area that I want to get into. But um, the other thing is in thermosets, thermoset, it, it just means like heat set. It means it produces heat generally when it's solidifying, but once it's solidified, it's set. You can't break those bonds. It's got those kind of really strong covalent chemical cross links that hold it together and are unbreakable. I mean, not unbreakable. Nothing is really unbreakable, but would take a lot of energy to break. Mm-hmm. So those are really hard to recycle because you have to find a way to chemically break it down. And that's one of the things that is part of not thinking about things in a circular lifespan because people came up with these amazing miracle plastics. And I would say there's been less research into figuring out how to break them down than figuring out how to make them. Mm. Yeah, well, there's and that is- less money in it, isn't there? Which is kind of, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, how so much research goes. But I mean, there would, there would be money with the amount of, like if you could- like glass, for example, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's pretty much like break it down, reform it, and it's pretty much the same as it was in the last object. Like it doesn't lose too much along the way. Am I am I right in thinking that? <laughs> like glass. Yeah. Pretty I, disclaimer, I do not know that much about glass recycling, but I, I think that's correct as well. I think pretty much, I mean, it takes a lot of heat. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things about glass recycling. It takes a lot of energy to recycle glass. But um, it's... It, from what I know about it, it's exactly what you're saying. You can just grind it up and reuse it because silica, which is what a lot of glass is made out of, is pretty recyclable. Mm. And it would be so cool to be able to do that with plastics, like with polymers, if we could make it properly a circle and just 
know that when you put it in the recycling bin, it's going to get turned into something equally as good as what you were holding in your hand. Like that would be really cool. <laughs> and it would be worth yeah. money. Like surely that would be worth money in the long run. Cause I think, especially from a humanitarian perspective, people are becoming more and more interested in how we can be more thoughtful with the products that we use and all that sort of stuff. So like there probably would be money, especially now, but yeah, I suppose it's just historically. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I totally agree. I think that there's plenty of money in it. it it's just, it's a huge, it's a combination of lots of problems, um, especially like a huge logistics problem, you know, getting there, there's so many different kinds of plastics, sorting them, getting them to the facilities that are able to recycle them. And then you have to take into account all of the chemical breakthroughs that need to happen for it to be really efficient. And I think it's totally possible. I think I want to see it happen in my lifetime. Uh, <laughs> but something that I think designers need to think about for now is trying to be thoughtful in choosing their material because we're not there yet on plastic recycling. We're working towards it. And I think that, I mean, there are plenty of ways to recycle plastic now. Um, there's lots of ways to downcycle plastic into other products. You know, think about Rothy, that company that um, recycles water bottles into shoes. Like, that's mm -hmm. a great way to recycle plastic. Um, but it's not recycling because it's not going back into the circle. It's downcycling it into a different product, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But I think something that designers can do is be really thoughtful about their choice of material and how possible it is to recycle it right now. Like aluminum is one of the dream recycling materials. It doesn't take that much energy to melt it back down and reform it into whatever you want. Uh, and you can do that infinite numbers of times. Mm. So I've seen like water bottles starting to get made out of aluminum. And that to me is like just perfect, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> we know <laughs> we know like everything not everything we know so much about aluminum recycling mm. so something that is a, a single use item like that that is going to need to be picked back up and used again absolutely use aluminum because mm. you don't have to wait around for us to figure out how to recycle it we already know mm. i wonder if you could make an al aluminum printer <laughs> That would be cool. I know glass <laughs> printers are being done. Um, there's there's a place down in Melbourne here in Australia who are making glass 3D printers for recycled glass. You just put the glass in with a bit of um, uh, it's not borax, but it's that stuff. It's it's something like that that makes it melt a bit lower at a lower temperature. But it's literally like plug in the normal wall socket, and this printer will print you glass. I know. I was like, so you don't even need like. Oh, I'm gonna have power. to look that up. <laughs> I mean, we do have 240 volt here in Australia, but yeah, it's called um Maple 3D and um a researcher from a university i don't think it's i think he's doing it on his own but he was a professor is a professor i'll have to look that up but yeah really cool and i was like dang i didn't know you could melt glass with just power in the wall like because i thought it needed kilns and you know all sorts of stuff so yeah i think that's quite exciting it'd be cool to have aluminium as well and like yeah it'd be cool to i, I really love the idea of branching out into other materials like i have had 
on the backlog for a long time a felt 3D printer in, in my brain that would needle felt objects together. So um, I don't know. I shouldn't be rambling about myself. I'm here to interview you. But like, no, no, I love that. <laughs> like, like a combination sewing machine printer. A little bit. Yeah. So a sewing machine would like sew something together, but needle felting, you have this like barbed needle and it has little downward facing barbs with the point going this way. And um, as you jab it into loose wool, like what you would get off a sheep or, you know, you might wash it and dye it or whatever, but like loose wool, um, you jab it into there and it tangles the fibers together. And the more tangling you do, the denser it gets and you can form shapes. And this is like a natural, like a handwork technique. Traditionally, you grab a little needle and you jab it at a thing and you can make cute little dolls and stuff. Um, but I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could feed that into a 3D printer and it jab um, and and do the, the needle felting for you and then move around and create lines by just feeding in wool, like yarn, um, and jabbing it all together into an object. And I, I designed a little head um, and manually moved it around on a build plate that I created. And it worked, like it worked as it should, but I need to attach it to a printer and get the G-code working and everything else. But I, I think... Theoretically, it should work. But um, anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. Just like, I love the idea of printing with other materials, I think. I just, that gets me really excited. Like like chocolate we were talking about before. And like, yeah, I think it would be really cool to um, have some of those more accessible too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I've not really thought about an aluminum printer, but I think it would be... Also, I love that you say aluminum because that is like looking at the word... A more, a more correct way to say it. <laughs> so do you guys still spell it aluminium as well? I think so. Okay. <laughs> I'm really bad like at spelling different, things different. in my head. I'm really bad at spelling all the time. So, <laughs> But yeah, we all say it aluminium. It's only America that says it. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. I was putting the I after the N in my head rather we than have before. The I we don't there. have an like... I. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which is like being special. <laughs> yeah, I I did a little bit of work with ceramic 3D printing, which oh. I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah it's um because norm I, they have all different kinds of paste extrusion, but it's one that I thought was like fascinating. They have um you can print with what are called pre-ceramic polymers and it's Stereolithography, just like I was talking about with the, the light reactive groups that hook together, but then you do what's called pyrolyzing, which is just you heat it way, 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 way up, like above a thousand degrees Celsius. And it, I'm going to say magically, I don't mean magically, but like it magically turns into a ceramic. Right. Like there's a chemical process that happens to it that turns it into a ceramic. Wow. That's cool. Is it? Like, is a ceramic mixed in and then the resin burns off? Or is it that the resin actually converts into... Oh, wow. Wow. There's a chemical what? process that I don't understand <laughs> enough to explain it, which is why I called it magic, uh, <laughs> that turns it into a ceramic, like, that on a chemical level, which so is cool. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to print in ceramic. I have this design for a... a fish tank filter um because i think gyroid would probably make a really good filter because i know that i did a research thing when i was in uni 
And in the body, gyroid infill, when they use it for like bone grafts and stuff or like to fill in areas of bone, the gyroid infill is the best because it allows better cell proliferation. Like it sticks to it because it's got all these twists and turns. So the cells kind of like deposit onto it easier and don't necessarily get washed away like they would in sort of channels or whatever. Um, so I was like, hmm, if cells grow on it, probably bacteria would. So it'd be really good for a fish tank filter. But I, I don't have a ceramic printer, but one day. <laughs> <laughs> But I just, yeah, I guess I just love yeah. all the different materials. I just think they, they, it would be really cool to be able to play with more of them on, on the hobby end, I suppose. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know just what you mean. Oh, I'm thinking about, have you heard about, um, I, I'm just going to plug everyone right now. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, Luke Cunningham. I think he, pre he presented at um, Earth this year. He's making an open SLS printer, um, selective laser centering, and you can print any material in his SLS machine. Cause normally SLS machines are these like enormous hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars machines yeah. uh, with crazy lasers and stuff. Like he has made one that fits like next to a desk basically. And is he's sell, he's gonna, I think it, one of his plans eventually is to like sell a kit that you can make it. I think he's putting out the instructions to how to make it right now. Uh, Grain of salt, I don't know that it... <laughs> what? Glitter printer when? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I saw, I, I looked at the video for that after I saw uh, all of the comments on his presentation, like glitter printer. Uh, you could totally do that. But awesome. um, yeah, yeah, I, I'm really interested in that. One thing that it doesn't have that all of those really expensive ones do have is a lot of well and I don't know this for sure I just looking at it um I don't know that it has all of the like safety precautions for fumes and stuff like that mm -hmm. which is something you have to worry about when you're working with a new material yeah so always watch out for that have good ventilation all of that stuff but I think that that project could be super interesting in that space yeah. because it could allow you to have a printer that could do all kinds of materials like that for a fraction of the cost That'd be really cool. Is that, if you had something like that and you were able to grind up plastics from your house or from old prints, would you be able to print it in something like that, do you reckon? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. It's possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think it would be possible. The, the reason I hesitate so much is because Right now, um, the right now he's printing in like sugar, which is great. But you see, based on the color of the sugar, that the laser, even at like pretty low settings, is caramelizing it, really heating it up. Um, and he's he's working on the the control of the laser, but uh, you you would need to calibrate it so that, to make sure that you didn't cook your material right away because it, it could just vaporize out of there. Um, but yeah, I could totally see that being something that you could just grind up thermoplastics, ones that can melt and reform. Um, because if you grind up a thermoset, it's just going to be powder that might heat up a lot. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know if it would actually connect to itself if you hit it with a laser, but... Icky vapors and... <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, put off some possibly carcinogenic vapors, but... <laughs> None of that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. so I I want I am so excited to see what his machine does because I think I mean for research institutions for 
people who want to play around with SLS on new materials. It, it just opens so many doors that were behind um, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of research grants before. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to get him on to talk about it because that sounds amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sure you should definitely interview him. Yeah, I'm sure I have him on Twitter, so I'll, I'll have to reach out. And Luke, if you're in the audience, <laughs> make yourself known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll um, I'll have to reach out to him. He's crazy smart. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think he's doing great things. So definitely look him up. <laughs> what are so you've you've had some of them? Are there any other people or projects that really inspire you? Yeah, um, I, so Carbon is this company, it's it's not like a, a person, but it's a company that is relatively new. Um, it started in like 2011. And I like to say it's like what happens when you get material scientists into 3D printing, uh, because oh, they're chemists. I like to claim them as material scientists, but they're chemists. Um, when we're doing stereolithography printing that's like upside down so that you have a, a smaller container of resin that you need to pull the part out of normally you have to like kind of peel part off of the bottom and then mm -hmm. pull it up a little bit and that that stresses the part it can sometimes delaminate the layers it causes lots of problems the genius of that printer was uh there's a the glass layer that you shine the light through that is the bottom of the vat Ha is permeable to oxygen and oxygen keeps the polymerization from happening. So you just pump oxygen through the bottom and it creates a dead zone where it doesn't polymerize and it just polymerizes right above that. So it never sticks. I think I've seen this and they have prints that just like in real time, just like you can watch them rise up out of the <laughs> So cool. Yeah. I've, I think I've seen that. That's awesome. Like genius. So genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's i i just i look at i mean there are tons of makers doing amazing things i saw a project on producer printers the other day that i'm definitely printing for my new apartment that was like a set of coasters uh with different infill patterns i thought that was so cool Love that. yeah and and little things like that inspire me all the time but on a material science side of it which is the side that's really uh really close to my heart it's innovations like that where someone goes, I know why this material acts like this and what it means. And if I just combine that with the understanding of the goals and what it wants to do, I can do something that no one has done before just by understanding the fundamental material. Mm, mm. And yeah. that's what I love in seeing material scientists and material science in all kinds of fields, but that's, I love seeing it in 3D printing because it's kind of one of my home fields, you know? Yeah. And that's what I want to do at Cocoa Press because I feel like there, there are so little, there, there are so few people in 3D printing chocolate and there are even fewer people who understand the material science of chocolate in 3D printing chocolate. Uh, like I would probably hazard a guess that in the United States, I am probably one of the only ones working on it from a material science perspective. I'm sure there are people studying the material science of chocolate, but like 3D printing chocolate material <laughs> science is a pretty niche thing. That's, yeah, so, that's super niche. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
combining the understanding of the chocolate as a material with the processing and the goals of the processing is something that I really, I find really interesting. And I'm inspired by people like Carbon um, doing that. Mm. So I, I would love to be able to contribute to that. And I love to see material science innovators doing things like that, just making connections that people didn't see because they don't understand the material on a fundamental level. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand that, oh, we could change that to do that. And then this problem wouldn't happen or yeah. Yeah. Oh, so cool. So cool. (laughs) I just, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. It's just fascinating. Everything (laughs) you've been saying. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about though? Um, no, I think we pretty much covered all of it. I, uh, I feel the same way about, t- I love talking to you. I think you're really interesting and you ask a lot of really good questions. Um, <laughs> Sorry for some of them. <laughs> I'm just so no. curious. Actually, I do have one that I thought of. You know how you were saying when things line up, they, um, they turn more opaque or they, yeah, like they change structure. I was wondering if you might have any hints about how silk PLA happens, because I know that it's all PLA, but it's so much shinier than other PLA. And if you don't know, that's fine. But I just thought I might ask, because I've always been like, how is it like toffee where they pull it and it goes shiny? But I thought that was because there was air in it. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, I don't, No, but if I was to hazard some guesses and grains of salt, because guesses, uh, (laughs) there's a couple things that people generally do to make 3D printing filament shiny. Uh, They will sometimes add mica, and the more you grind up the mica, um, the smaller the sparkles are, if that makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. something being shiny is essentially just having like really, 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 really tiny sparkles. Um, sometimes yeah. there are other ways to make things really shiny, but yeah, it's kind of different to the glitter filaments though. Um, and it doesn't. Yeah, it's like it's like taffy, like you know, like or like hard boiled candy. How it gets like shiny? It looks like that, but yeah, it doesn't seem to have little glitter particles like other glitter like other like protopasta and stuff they have lots of little particles of cool pretty stuff in it but yeah I don't know maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's just a I'm not sure <laughs> yeah I'm definitely gonna look that up because I I kind of always thought it was mica but it might be the, the other way that people um make stuff shiny like that is by adding different additives that are not mica. So it's probably just some interesting additive that does that. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. Let me know if you do figure it out. Cause I, it's like, a, it's like a mystery that I think about every time I use silk filament, I'm like, how, how do you shine? <laughs> and Yeah. Okay. So I did the classic thing that I was talking about. Um, I didn't understand something. So I immediately Googled it. Uh- <laughs> And their description, the the first one that I see is uh, it's just PLA with certain additives. And I'm guessing the reason that they phrase it like that is it's probably a proprietary thing. Like, I mean, you know, silk PLA by name, like not name of brand, but uh, that you love the way it looks. And that's a competitive advantage. So I'm sure... 
Uh, not sure. I think probably whoever made that is going to want to keep that to themselves. Maybe, maybe not. But like, <laughs> that would explain why it's, it's less well known. I, I bet it's just some colorant type additive that gives it like the shine. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Good to know. Thoughts. <laughs> um, oh, awesome. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me. I've just loved it. And yes, I always love when you jump on Matt's calls as well and you get to talk about cool stuff. It's always just so lovely spending time with you. <laughs> Making me red. Thanks. I know I have not been on those calls as much as I probably should. I know. I really enjoy being on them. I just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like all I, of you. Uh, after listening to make a pie and drive an hour and a half. So <laughs> Dang. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yes, like, that'll be good. I, I keep forgetting it's Thanksgiving week for everyone in the States. So um enjoy that. That should be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm uh I'm excited to make this pie. My mom sent me her prize winning apple pie recipe and you know it's good when it's just a picture from a cookbook and not like a link yeah yeah definitely books that's where the golden food knowledge is (laughs) (laughs) uh they say scarcity is value so um there's less access to those books which is how you know yeah it's good stuff well i know with sewing at least the, the best knowledge still is in books for sure like there's a lot of knowledge online but the best is still in books like yes <laughs> so it's a, i think there's a thing for those those you know older crafts crafts with a long history <laughs> cooking and sewing and stuff being in books <laughs> it's good to know i'm i'm getting myself a sewing machine uh for christmas and so i that's a good tip yeah I'll be on the lookout for some good sewing books Reader's Digest sewing or Singer sewing? One of those two. Um, doesn't really matter which. They both contain very similar information. But they are like a Bible of all sewing knowledge. <laughs> so that would I'm be gonna a really write good this one down. to have. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also Reader's me, if you, if you have any questions, let me know. <laughs> if you want, yeah, if you ever get stuck, I'm happy to help. <laughs> oh, also, I know we talked about this basically a million years ago now, but uh, I found my little write-up on what K-value is. Oh, cool. Yay. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, linear advance. I'm, I'm just going to read it off because it's probably going to be more clear if I do that. Uh, basically, linear advance seems like it is meant to help complement the stop, start, acceleration change of extrusion by giving a compressible fluid a little extra push on start and a little extra retract on stop. Mm. So a higher K value for a material means that that material is springier so that it will push a little harder on start to get it going and retract a little bit more on stop to get it to stop extruding. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I've definitely had filaments that when you're like loading the machine and you're like manually putting pushing it through, some of them seem to come out easier than others. So um, yeah, I can. T- and some of them swell more than others. So that makes sense that, yeah, it would be different per material. Thank you for the little. Yeah. yeah, that's one of those fun things that um, all of the super smart mechanical engineers that designed 3D printers eventually figured out was due to the material. Yeah, there you go. Wow, I love the. I love that 3D printing is like this 
interplay between chemistry and material science and and mechanical engineering and electrical engineering and then like now craftspeople as well you know it's just like this beautiful this beautiful baby of so many different fields comes together and makes this really cool thing that's very inspiring I I don't know I just think it's real neat (laughs) yeah I totally agree it's so interesting to see all of the fields come together because that's when magic happens you know is Mm. when a bunch of people who think about things really different ways get together and talk about it Totally agree. Yeah, definitely. I see that all the time on like Twitter and stuff, like just boom, boom. Oh, wow. This fabulous new idea has exploded. Yeah, it's so cool. (laughs) Well, uh, just to, I remembered right as you said that, um, how stainless steel was invented. That was one story that I kind of wanted to tell because it ties into that. And I guess this will be my last little story. Um, But so in the early 1900s, they were trying to invent a stronger metal for gun barrels because gun barrels were bending, snapping, exploding. And, you know, with the advent of like machine guns and all that stuff, these guns were under a lot of stress and it was really dangerous to operate a gun because it could explode on you. So um, there was this scientist who material scientist, uh, metallurgist, as he was called back then. Um, oh God, I should remember his name, but I don't right now. Who was tasked with basically designing a stronger steel for gun barrels. And they didn't know that much about metallurgy back then. They knew some, but not a lot. And so he was just basically throwing ingredients in a pot and then taking it to a hardness tester, tapping it if it wasn't harder than the standard at that time, throwing it in a pile. And so one day he was sorting through this huge pile of rusty samples. And there was one sample that was shiny. And he was like, what? He picked it up and, uh, you know, looked at the label on it, figured out which sample it was, and it was stainless steel. It just happened that he made this perfect mixture of chromium and uh, iron and carbon that made stainless steel. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> oh, there you go. Isn't that, isn't that always the way to like, well, not always, but it's always kind of cool when that is the way. And it's just like, there it is, this magic thing that now we have access to. It's incredible. Yeah. I just, as you were telling that story, I was reflecting upon how we actually trace human history through materials. Like we say, Stone Age, Iron Age, Bronze Age, you know, like we actually, we actually trace, we, we, we mark our progress through materials. It's funny that we don't think of it more often and that it's not, you know, like the general public doesn't consider it more because it, it, it does really mark our progress as a civilization. <laughs> oh, I can, I could not agree more. I mean, not just because it speaks <laughs> to my field, but, uh, but yeah, I would say we're in the plastic age right now and we have been since like the mid 1900s. Yeah, when was and, uh, <laughs> Oh man, I should know this, but I, I could not tell you a date. I'm really bad at dates. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> we don't need that. Sometime when they were still wearing corsets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a while ago. Yeah, I think, well, the first plastic to be used was like the sap from rubber trees. Oh. And you would like dip clothes in it to waterproof it. Right. That's cool. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Because natural rubber just comes out of trees. Yeah. 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 And now I'm thinking about it. 
yeah, there's like lots of other gums and stuff that have been used in art that, yeah, okay, interesting. Hmm. <laughs> Fun fact, vulcanization is just cross-linking. It's a specific kind of cross-linking. Neat. Oh, that's cool. Oh, you're such a wealth of knowledge. We should just do this more. <laughs> I just love it. Thank you. I, I love inspired. talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, really cool. Something and that I... makes me really sad. Oh, go ahead. No, you go. Sad. Go for it. Something that makes me kind of sad sometimes is um, a, a lot of, like, I see this and I've worked with a lot of mechanical engineers because they're often working on the really cool projects like Evan uh, that I want to work on the materials for. Uh, they get in a lot of their classes, the materials class is just like this requirement that they have to do. And sometimes it's grueling and sometimes it's boring, but it's never given the kind of, it, it's never given what it deserves. I think not never, it is often not given what it's deserved. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you make the design and then you go to pick a material for it and pick it from this. It's like, it's the there's so the much more yeah. than that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, it, I just talking to you, it makes me feel excited about it. Like I've always loved chemistry and I did a little bit of that at uni, but I'd love, I, I just think, yeah, material science is so fascinating. And now I'm like, do I want to go and study that again? That's really cool. <laughs> like, I feel all excited. You you have like a, an infectious sort of, um, yeah, an infectious way of viewing it, I suppose. <laughs> I was thinking thank about- Thank you. I, I really... Oh, sorry. No, you go. No, no, no. I was just saying thank you. Uh, I was thinking about, um, yeah, something that made me think recently about how different people influence each other and, and, and how, it, like you were saying before, how it, when different stuff comes together, it makes really cool, awesome things. And I remember Adrian Bauer, like a couple of weeks ago, he's the father of RepRap, and he, he posted on his Twitter that um, he was inspired, so he was a mechanical engineer, and he was inspired to get into electronics because he um, loved the work of a woman, and I, I have forgotten her name, but she made synthesizer music for like A Clockwork Orange and Tron and like all these classic 80s synth sounds that we sort of associate with synthesizer music and the birth of it. That was her. And he got inspired to go into electronics because he was so inspired by her work. And then he gave birth to the rep rap movement, you know, and then like all sorts of really interesting developments in 3D printing and like, you know, like he, like, you know, he's almost a father of 3D printing in, in some ways. And um, yeah, and I just, it just hit me like how interesting that this artist inspired him to get into something that eventually led to all these amazing developments in 3D printing. And I just think there's something so magic in that. It's almost like creativity doesn't happen within one person anymore because we can be, we can experience so many different other people. It's like creativity is happening between people so rapidly now. And it's just such a cool time to be alive and so many cool people to, yeah, I just, I don't know. It made me think about how awesome that is. <laughs> oh yeah. I think about um, one of the best professors I ever had, um, Elizabeth Holm. She, oh, she's so cool. Uh, she's like one of the OG computer material scientists who works with computation, like computational material science is what it's called. Oh. And it's stuff like modeling all of those bonds I was talking about modeling um, grain size in metals and how that affects the strength and uh, trying to figure that out from fundamentals and starting with theory and comparing that to empirical results and getting them to match up. Uh, anyway, when she first got into it, uh, she said there was so little 
community around computation that they just kind of threw her in a room with at all these conferences with anyone else who was doing any kind of computation on anything. <laughs> and <laughs> now there's whole societies around uh, computational material science. But she has said, like, some of my best ideas, some of, well, I don't know if best, some of, she's, cause she's had a lot of really good ideas, but uh, some of her really interesting ideas have come out of discussions with people at those kind of conferences where it was just throw everyone who's doing anything remotely related to computation in a room together. Yeah. Because you get people trying to do completely different things with the same resources. And so they're like, oh, I'm using uh, this specific kind of tensor math. Like, oh, I'm using this specific kind of matrix processing. It's like, oh, I could use that to solve my problem way easier, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I think this magic happens when when all these different things align. I think that's what's so beautiful about the maker community too, is there's so many different backgrounds all coming together and yeah, why so much cool stuff happens. Yeah. And people want to hear about the stuff that you're doing that they've never heard of, you know? Mm, mm. Yeah, we all seem to have like a little dose of ADHD or something. We're like, oh, shiny. Oh, oh, tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah and yeah. I love that. Me too. It's beautiful. <laughs> Oh, this is so great. I keep saying it. Thank you so much for coming on and, and joining me. Um, where, where can people find you where, if they want to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I don't tweet very often, but every once in a while I will uh, say something sassy in response to uh, some company's tweet. Uh, awesome. <laughs> mostly I, I just like and uh, sometimes retweet stuff that Coco Press says, because that's where I'm doing most of my stuff. Um, so on Twitter, I'm Amy Coronado 17. Uh, and it's just a picture of me smiling real big in my Coco Press shirt. So uh, I am on Facebook, like everyone uh, in the world, basically, at this point. <laughs> uh, and really following Coco Press, because that's my heart and soul right now. Uh, so the Cocoa Press accounts are just at Cocoa Press on Instagram, at Cocoa Press on Twitter. Um, and then there's a Cocoa Press page on Facebook. Uh, and I, I would love for people to keep following that and giving us ideas. Like one of our big show pieces that we love to make and show off to people is um, Pineapple Vase. And Pineapple Vase was just some guy made it and then tweeted it at us. And it was perfect for our printer. It was perfect to show off huge build volume. And it was such a cool piece. And so we just made it and I would love to see more stuff like that. I want people to tweet ideas at me because there's only so many ideas I can come up with for stuff to print. Yeah. I want the maker community to tell me what to make so that I don't have to come up with it all by myself. <laughs> there you go. Message them. <laughs> Get some awesome chocolate prints. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give me your models. I want to print them. Heck yes. Beautiful. Oh, well, thank you again. This was really so wonderful. And thank you for coming on and, and, and sharing all your wisdoms. It's, it's been wonderful. <laughs> of course. I, I love talking about this stuff. So it was really fun for me. Yay. Oh, well, um, I will see you on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I will see you around. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> I am loving making this series, and if you are too, please support me on Patreon so I can keep making more. Top supporters will appear in this list of legends. <laughs> you can meet another maker here, 
and here's a video YouTube thinks you'll like. If you want to catch up with any of us, all our socials are in the description below. See you later!